Did you know that more than 45% of us regularly lose our temper at work? One in four adults have committed an act of road rage. 56% of people have gone complete Karen over a good or service. I need you to calm down over a burger. And believe it or not, one in five people have cut ties with friends or loved ones over their angry behavior. What causes us to keep choosing anger over compassion? What do we do when road rage has always been the default? Is it even possible to quit the vicious cycle? It may seem hopeless, but Jesus has brought clarity. He shows us the truth so we can answer these questions once and for all. Believe it or not. Well, there was a young woman and her car stalled out in an intersection. She was in the left-hand turning lane. And there was plenty of room for cars behind her to navigate and get around her. But one particular driver just stayed right behind her vehicle. And rather than offering to assist her, he just kept laying on the horn again and again and again. Well, this made her more and more angry every time he laid on the horn. And she's trying everything she can. So she tries to start the car again. The car won't start. Other cars are passing by, but this one guy just keeps honking the horn. Well, finally, she's had absolutely enough. So she gets out of her car. She walks back to where that guy's at. He rolls down his window. He's a little bit startled. She looks at him and she says, I tell you what, why don't you get my car started and I'll sit back here and honk my horn. She was a little bit upset, wasn't she? She was a little bit, she was a little bit mad. There, there was a lady that went on to a, a bus, and, and she was getting ready to pay her fare. And she had her baby in her arms. And, and the bus driver said, that is the ugliest baby I've ever seen. Now, that's rude right there, no matter if it's an ugly baby or not. That's just rude. You don't say that about, you know, a child. And, and so the, the wife and the woman was just so shocked. She just couldn't believe that somebody would speak to her in that manner. She didn't know what to say. Well, she walks back and she sits down in a huff and the guy sitting next to her says, well, what seems to be the problem here? She says, I can't believe it, but that bus driver insulted me. And the man said, well, that's ridiculous. He's a public servant. He has no right to insult anybody. She said, you know what? You're absolutely right. I think I'll go up there and give him a piece of my mind. Man said, I think that's a good idea. Here, let me hold your walrus. <laughs> that's funny right there. Have a sense of humor, would you? Let me tell you one more. Now, this one's not funny, okay? This, this one's much more serious. This actually happened. Years ago on I-5 in Seattle, Washington, there is a bridge called the Ship Canal Bridge. And this is one of the main thoroughfares, and it was shut down uh, during rush hour. The reason it was shut down was because there was a 26-year-old woman who was clinging to her life. She was contemplating whether she was going to live or she was going to die. She had climbed over the side of the bridge, 160 foot straight down into the water below, and she was thinking that life wasn't worth living anymore. Well, you would think that people who found themselves in traffic, who found out about this woman and her suicidal tendencies, would pray for her. Or they would have compassion for her. Or they'd extend kindness to her. But no, that's not what happened at all. Those people got angry, and rage became the, the moment of the day. People literally, listen to me, this is true, they literally pulled their cars off of the highway and got in an earshot of where that woman was clinging to life, and they begged her, they shouted at her to jump from that bridge. They said, you need to jump so we can get home. 
there was a local DJ who was fielding phone calls. And he was also making a petition for the woman to jump so the bridge could open up again. He even went so far as to put sound effects of objects falling into water over the air. Police, in, in, in the beginning, allowed one lane of traffic to go by. But eventually, they shut the entire bridge down because as people were driving by, they were shying her to jump. And guess what? She did. James Emery White asked the question, what prompts people armed with cell phones and time sitting still in traffic with the ability to assist to respond with such anger and contempt? What leads a heart away from compassion and empathy toward callous indifference, even murderous rage? It's simple. People are dangerous and cruel, not can be, but are. That's the world we live in. A world that is harsh, a world that is critical, a world that is full of anger and pain and resentment, a world full of short tempers where kindness is rarely seen in anybody, especially when things don't go the way that we want them to go. Now, one of the reasons we love Jesus so much is because of his kindness, isn't it? We read passages of scripture where Jesus finds people at the lowest moment of their life and it would have been easy for Jesus to have slammed them. It would have been easy for Jesus to condemn them, but he never did. He always treated them with kindness. I think about that woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Jesus is teaching one day when the Pharisees drag this woman naked into the room that he's teaching in. They throw her down onto the ground and they say, we found this woman in the very act of adultery. And according to the law of Moses, such a woman needs to be stoned. That means you drag that poor girl outside the city gates, you throw her down in a pit, you take softball-sized rocks and boulders, and you beat her till she dies. For what she's done is so heinous and so wrong. My question of that passage of Scripture has always been, where's the guy? Where's the guy? This is a setup, you understand this, right? They've set this woman up. And she's done the wrong thing, there's no doubt. And they say what she's done is worthy of death. And they want to judge her and they want to condemn her. We love Jesus because he's the one who stood up for her. We love Jesus because he's the one who looked at those Pharisees and those teachers of religious law and says, I tell you what, guys, if you've never sinned, you throw the first stone. And then the Bible says that they began to leave from the oldest all the way down to the youngest. And then Jesus turned to the woman and says, is there no one here to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. Well, there was one. There was one that could condemn her. But Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. You go now and leave your life of sin. This is not what God wants for your life. It's his kindness, isn't it? I think about John chapter 4. Jesus has to go to this well in Samaria to meet with the Samaritan woman. Her life has not turned out the way that she hoped that it would. I mean, my goodness, she's drawing water at 12 noon because she doesn't want to be around the, the people in the town because they make fun of her. They, they say evil things about her. She knows what she's done. She knows what she's become. But she's tired of the gossip. She's tired of the rumors. She's tired of the con condemning stares. So Jesus is there at 12 noon. And he begins to have a conversation with her. And we find out in the conversation that this woman's been married five times and is currently living with a guy. Jesus could have slammed her. He could have judged her. He could have condemned her right there in the moment. But he has a conversation with her about living water and about a water that quenches the thirst that you have deep inside your soul. And she wants this water. 
And the woman is sarcastic. She's cynical. She kind of puts it on Jesus. And yet he responds again and again with kindness. And when they get done with that conversation, that woman runs to the town, to the people that she's been trying to avoid. And she says, come meet the man who knew everything about me and still cared about me. Still loved me. One of the things we love about Jesus is how kind he was, how grace-giving he was, how loving that he was. So we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today where he does the exact same thing. This is in Luke chapter 5. Jesus encounters a man who has leprosy. This is what the Bible says, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now Luke is a doctor. And so he's going to be very determined to give us detail about how bad this guy's condition is. This guy just doesn't have a little case of leprosy. He doesn't have a couple of bumps on his arms. This guy is covered in leprosy. That, that means he only has a few more days, maybe a few more weeks left to live. Now, let me, let me explain to you what leprosy is because this is not something that you want to Google. I'm going to tell you that right now. The images are gross. Here's how it would begin. You would wake up and you would feel fatigued. And your joints would ache a lot. And then you would start to see on your skin some patches and some nodules. And they would begin to grow over time, and, and they become lumps, and then they would ulcerate. And then they would break forth, and I'm told that the stench would be unbelievable as the pus would ooze out. And it would begin to take over large regions of your body, over your arms, your chest, your legs, even your face. The person generally, when at the later stages of leprosy, would see so deformed that you wouldn't even know that, who they once were. Now, the leprosy would eventually go into your mouth and down your throat. That's why most lepers, that they didn't have the ability to speak. They, they were hoarse at best. A lot of people had lost their vocal cords, their ability to speak, because of the ulceration of the leprosy in their throat. Eventually, the leprosy would enter into the brain, and the person would lose mental functioning, and they would die in a coma. This is what would happen in the first century. There was no cure for leprosy. So at the first sign that you thought you might be a leper, the first sign you think you might have this disease, you would go down to the priest and you would ask the priest to examine you. And if the priest determined that, yes, in fact, you had leprosy, you were then banished from society. No longer could you even return back to your house even to get some garments, to get some clothing. You were told immediately to leave town and go to the leper colony outside of town where you would stay until the moment that you died. Now, can you imagine this moment? You have a feeling that something's not right. You're, you're, you're concerned that it might be leprosy. You show yourself to the priest. He says, go to the leper colony. You have leprosy. You will never feel the warm embrace of your spouse ever again. You seeing your kids grow up? That's not going to happen for you. You'll never be able to play catch with them again. Never be able to go to one of their games again. Never, never be in their life ever again. And you will lose everything. In the blink of an eye, you've lost everything. You've lost your family. You've lost your marriage. You've lost your livelihood. And now you're just a person who's a part of the walking dead. And these leper colonies were not good places to go. People who had leprosy would lose sensation in their, in their fingers and in their toes. Many times at night, a leper would wake up the next day and, and their toes and their fingers would, would be gnawed off. And, and people thought, what, what in the world's going on in the middle of the night? Leper colonies were infested with rats, so rats would come in and they would eat away the fingers and the toes and even the nose of the person and they wouldn't even feel it. To make matters worse, if you did decide to leave a leper colony to go venture out, you could be killed. It was not lawful for you to leave a leper colony because you were diseased. And so if you came out, it was legal for you to kill that person. 
At the very least, you would pelt them with rocks or you would pelt them with eggs. And here's the other thing that's interesting. In the first century, a person who contracted leprosy, they were cursed by God. At least that's what people believed. They believed, oh my goodness, since you have this disease, obviously you did something so heinous, something so wrong, something so sinful that God has cursed you. So not only are you going to die, but you're going to die because of something that you've done. And God's not for you. God's against you. God has cursed you. And everywhere you would go, you would have to shout out, unclean, unclean. So people would stay away from you. Now, here we are 2,000 years later. And guess what? We have our fair share of people that we consider to be unclean, don't we? People who look differently than us people who think differently than us, people who believe differently than us, people who have different political persuasions than us. Unclean! Unclean. We see them as a nuisance. We don't see them with the love of Christ. During the Korean War, there was a soldier who went away for battle. His parents hadn't heard from him for 10 months. And then one day they received a phone call from him. He was in San Diego. They lived on the East Coast in New York, and he was heading home. He said, my time in the war is over, and I'm coming home, and I'm bringing the buddy with me. But my buddy has been shot up pretty bad. He lost an eye. He lost a leg. He lost an arm. And mom, I want him to come, and I want him to live with us. And the mom said, oh, I'm so excited that you're coming home. And that buddy of yours must have been extremely brave. Yes, he can come live with us for a week or two. The son said, no, mom, that's, that's not what I'm saying. He's, he's busted up really badly. He's going to need a support system. He's going to need a family to love him and care for him. I, I'm asking you, mom, can he live with us for the rest of your life? And the mom said, honey, that's, that's an awful lot to take. I tell you what, we'll do it for six months. And then I'm sure in six months, a family member, a relative, he'll be able to get on his own feet again. He'll be, he'll be okay. He can live with us for six months. The son said, mom. He doesn't. He only have one eye, one arm, one leg. I want him to live with us for the rest of our lives. And then the mom lost her patience. She said, do you realize the difficulty it would be in taking care of someone like this? What a drag this would be on the entire family. It would change every, every aspect of our life. And the care that would be necessary for a person in this kind of condition, well, it's more care than I want to give. It's more care than we can give. And with that, the son hung up the phone. The next day, the phone rang. The mom answered the phone. It was a police officer from San Diego. Previous night, her son, who was supposed to return home just a few days, had committed suicide. They waited a week for the body to get to New York. And when they got to there, they had to identify the body. And when they pulled the sheet back, there was their son, who happened to be missing in one eye, one arm, and one leg. We, we have a list of who we want to have in our life, of, of, if it's convenient, if it somehow affords us some kind of measure of benefit, then we'll have them be a part of our life. You know, if they believe the same things we believe and think the same things we think, they have the same political persuasion that we have, if they look the same as us, but if they look a little bit different, if they believe a little bit different, if they're a little different in their lifestyle, well, then we don't really want anything to do with them. You know what's interesting? Is that Jesus was so kind and so compassionate to everyone. 
And, it, and one day he said, you'll know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. That, that what should be marked for a follower of Jesus Christ is that there should be such a distinction in how we handle ourselves and how we love other people, how we treat other people, that a lost and dying world would find that to be absolutely unbelievable. We have a little saying around here, every single person you lock eyes with matters to God and they should matter to you as well, right? Every single person we lock eyes with should matter to us and because it matters to God. Well, I want you to see what happens here because in the first century, rabbis were told not to have anything to do with people who had leprosy because they were unclean. I want you to see what Jesus did. When he, Jesus, oh, excuse me, when he, the leper, saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, here's what's interesting about this passage of Scripture. He doesn't doubt for a second, does he, that Jesus can do it. He's just not certain that Jesus wants to do it. Some of you are here today, and you feel like the outcast. In fact, you're a little bit shocked that you're in this room right now. In fact, you thought the walls were going to fall down when you entered in, right? And some of you are watching me from home. Some of you are watching me in a bar. Some of you are watching me in a gym. And you're just flipping through the channels or wherever place you were in that I just happened to be on, right? And you honestly believe that God's against you, that God doesn't love you, that God doesn't care about you. You know that God can help other people, that God can forgive other people, right? But what you've done so bad, I mean, my goodness, you've done so much damage. You have so many regrets, right? You've broken your heart. You've broken the heart of those you love. You've broken the heart of God. And you just believe in your heart and in your soul that you're just too far gone. You know God can fix it. You just don't think he really cares enough about you to want to fix it for you. Because you're too messed up. You're beyond the reach of God. I want you to hear something loud and clear. You're never so messed up that God can't clean you up. And you need to stop running from God. Because you can't run that fast and you can't run that far. God's already ahead of you. And God's already pursuing you. And let me tell you something, friend. He's not pursuing you to slam you or to condemn you or rub your face in it. He's pursuing you because he loves you. And he's trying to save you from yourself. He wants to take that sin that's, that's wreaked havoc in your life, that sin that keeps you up at night, that guilt and that pain that you carry with you everywhere you go, and he wants to throw it as far as the east is from the west. This leper's not so sure, man. He's like, hey, man, Jesus, I know you can do it, but I'm a leper. I'm an outcast. How's he know that? Because that's how everybody treats him. Nobody wants anything to do with him. He's been banished. He's been banned. And anytime he gets a glance from somebody else, they look at him as if he's someone who's cursed by God himself. I want you to see what Jesus does here. The Bible says in verse 13 that Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus touched him before he healed him. Here's my question. How long has it been since he's felt a human touch? People didn't want anything to do with him. They wanted him to stay away. When he would say unclean, they'd say stay six feet. Sound familiar? 
You stay as far away from me as you possibly can. How long has it been since he's felt the warm embrace? And yet Jesus entered into his world. Jesus touched him at the dirtiest point of his life. I was reading a book the other day by Max Lucado. It's a great book called Cure for the Common Soul. He talked about an elementary school class. You remember going to elementary school, don't you? Elementary school was so much fun. Remember there was rules that you had to abide by in elementary school. And if you didn't abide by the rules, then you would end up going from the happy face over to the sad face. Do you remember that? Some of you lived your life down here in the sad face, didn't you? That's just the way you were right there. Look at the rules. You got to follow directions quickly. You need to raise your hand for permission to speak. You need to raise your hand for permission to leave your seat. Sounds like a jail to me. You got to make smart choices, right? Max tells the story about a little girl by the name of Mara. Mara began to hum a song, a song that had to be hummed. Here was the problem. One of the rules was that you weren't allowed to hum in class because it was a distraction to the learning of the rest of the kids in the classroom. So the teacher said, Mara, you know the rule, no humming in class. So Mara stopped humming for about 30 seconds. And then the song came back to mind again and she began to hum it ever so quietly to herself. And the teacher heard it. She said, Mara, I've warned you once. I'm now going to warn you a second time. Stop your humming. But Mara couldn't stop humming for there was joy in her life and she wasn't going to allow the teacher to suck the joy out of her. So she waited a few more moments and then she continued to hum just ever so quietly. And the teacher heard it and said, Mara, that's it. And then the teacher did something to Mara that had never been happened to her before. She took her clothespin and moved it from green to blue. And Mara had never been in the blue area ever before. She felt isolated. She felt lonely. She felt alone. And the guilt over what she had done came over her like a wave and she began to cry. There was a little boy, his name was Blake. He sat at the same table as Mara, and when she began to cry, his heart began to break. He scooted his chair over closer to hers, and he began to pat her on the back, trying to comfort her. But nothing he could do would stop her from crying. He even tried to make some funny faces and make her laugh, yet his funny faces weren't funny enough. For Mara had been banished. She was an outcast. At least that's how she felt. So Blake did something heroic. He began to hum. But he didn't hum quietly like Mara was humming. No, Blake hummed with everything he had. And the teacher said, Blake, now you already saw what happened to Mara. You don't want that to happen to you, Blake. You stop your humming. He didn't even pause. He just continued on humming away. The teacher said, fine then we'll move your clothespin as well. And when Mara saw that she wasn't alone anymore, that she had a friend who would enter into her world, she stopped crying because her loneliness had been taken away. Colorless blue. We've all sinned a blue streak, haven't we? Every single one of our clothes pins, because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
has been over here, hasn't it? So what did Jesus do? He saw you lonely. He saw you hurting. He saw your heart breaking. He saw you loaded down with guilt and shame and regret. If you're anything like me, you'd give anything to go back in time and change some of the things that you did, some of the people that you've hurt. So Jesus enters into our world and says you don't have to be alone anymore. But Jesus did more than take away our loneliness. Jesus also wants to take away our sin. Look at what the Bible says here. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. I love the fact that Jesus touched this man. He touched the ugliest part of his life and he made it beautiful again. And I just want you to hear this. He wants to do the same thing for you. Because some of you think, man, I'm too far gone. I mean, there's some Christians here. You keep going back to the same old sin, and you're so certain that God's not going to forgive you again, that God's given up on you, and you're hanging on by a thread, and you feel the distance between you and the Lord. I want you to hear this. God wants to enter into the dirtiest, ugliest parts of your life, and he wants to make them beautiful again. He will not give up on you. He cares about you. Jesus came for you. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He took our sin debt that we owe to holy God, and he died on Calvary's cross so we could be forgiven of our sin. Oh, friends, we were dead men walking until Jesus rose again from the dead. And now we have hope beyond the grave because of what Jesus did. We get to go to heaven one day, not because of anything we've done, but because of what he did for us. So let Jesus come into your life. You say, I want this, man. I'm so tired of living my life the way I've lived. I'm so tired of carrying this burden around. What must I do to be saved? Well, the Bible says this, Jesus speaking, he said, repent. That means turn away from what you've been doing. It should be the desire of your heart that you want to love God, that you want to follow God, that you want to please God in everything that you say and in everything that you do, that you want to honor him with your life. And at the end of our service today, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. We're going to give you an opportunity to finally say, you know what? I'm going to cast my cares, cast my sin upon the Lord, and I'm going to let him take it as far as the east is from the west. I want to be made new again. I want to be clean again, and Jesus will do that for you. But I want to spend the next five minutes talking to the Christians that are in this room and the Christians that have me tuned on at home. A lost and dying world finds Christianity to be unbelievable. Do you know why they find it to be unbelievable? It's because Christians, for the most part, and this is our reputation, we're known for being mean and rude and cynical, and judgmental. We're not known for love. We're not known for grace. You know what we're known for? We're known for what we're against. But you know what I'd really love to have happen for all of us if we can somehow turn the tide around in our city? Is that we would not be known for what we're against, but we would be known for what we're for. And that people would know that we are for them. That we love them. That we can accept them. Because Jesus accepted us the way that we are, right? When we came to Jesus, he didn't ask us to clean ourselves up, to get in a right relationship with him. He said, I'll do that clean up. Wouldn't it be something if we extended the same love and the same grace to other people that Jesus has extended to us? Wouldn't it be something if what came out of our mouth was kindness? So can I ask you a question? 
We're two years in this stupid pandemic. Has kindness come out of your mouth these past two years? About the mask. Were you always kind? Should you mask? Should you not mask? Were you kind about that one? Vaccinated or not vaccinated? Were you kind during that? Trump. Biden. Were you kind? Or did you let the rage of the age get the best of you? And you ramped up and you told your two cents and you ripped it. And you didn't reflect Jesus at all. Look what the Bible says here in Ephesians chapter 4. It says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. Just as in Christ God forgave you. Have we forgotten how kind and compassionate he's been to us? So how in the world can we justify not being kind and compassionate to somebody else? And we, we should be known as Christians as the greatest forgivers there ever is because of all that we've been forgiven for. That we should be the fastest forgivers. And yet, there are so many people who profess that they follow Jesus, but they're actually following resentment and anger. So unlike Christ, we should be marked by love. 1 Corinthians 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but I have not love, I gain nothing. You ever thought about the cost of being unkind? Because when you, people around you know that you're a follower of Jesus and you're unkind to someone, you've just wounded them. You've taken a shot of their self-esteem from them. You've devalued someone. When, when, when we are rude and when we're harsh, the kindness of Christ begins to fade from view. But when we're kind, when we're loving, when we're forgiving, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of rage, even in the midst of anger, the value of Christ is brought forth. And what's our job as a Christian? Our job is to so lift up Jesus that this lost and unbelieving world would see the difference of our love and our kindness and our forgiveness and they would say, I want to be like that. I want to be like Jesus. Lonnie Edwards is a PE teacher at the Hooper Alexander Elementary School in DeKalb County, Georgia. Do you remember when you were in elementary school and the PE teacher wanted you to square dance? That was terrible, wasn't it? It's like the worst week. I always wanted to fake sick during that week, you know. Square dance, and it's country music to boot, you know. It's terrible right there, right? So he starts pairing the kids up. Boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. Learn the square dance moves. And none of the kids are feeling it. They're all fifth graders. They don't want, they don't want square dance. And there was one little girl, her name was Nancy. And when she heard that they were all going to pair up and hold hands and square dance, she just walked out. 12-year-old kid, just redheaded, just walked out. She had never acted like this before in her entire life. And, and the teacher, Lonnie, he was a little bit upset. He, he, he chased Nancy down. He said, Nancy, stop, stop, stop. She just kept walking. She walked out of the gymnasium. She walked out into the hallway. He followed her out in the hallway. said, stop, Nancy, stop. 
She finally stopped and she turned around. She had wrapped a towel around her hands. She turned around she was weeping. Lonnie said, what in the world's going on? You've never acted like this before in your entire life. Nancy said, I, I, don't, I don't want to square dance. I, I can't square dance. And Lonnie said, what, what in the world are you talking about? And she said, I have a deformed hand. I was born with a pinky and a couple of misshapen fingers. That's, that's all I've got for a hand. Well, Lonnie didn't even know it. This, this little girl had been able to write and do all of her homework and never even made any mention that she had this issue in her life. And so none of the teachers even knew that she had a deformed hand, but the kids did. And you know how kids are. Anybody who looks a little different, acts a little different, boy, they're the, they're the target, aren't they? And they laughed at her. They made fun of her. Nobody wanted to touch her. She was worse than just having cooties, you understand. She wept in the hallway. And this is what Lonnie said to her. He said, Nancy, we can't do anything about this problem, but I can help you overcome it and become the best you can be. Now, I want you to hold your head up. From this moment on, you will no longer use this as a limitation. And slowly, Nancy began to loosen the towel that was covering up her hand. And together, she went back into the gymnasium. Well, four days goes by, you learn to do -si do and do all the different square dance moves, and now it's time for the kids to square dance, and nobody wants anything to do with her. So the teacher square danced with her. And when the kids saw that he was okay holding her hand, other children were even eager to make Nancy a part of the group. Lonnie stayed in her life for the next few years, continued to encourage her, continued to be kind to her. She grew up and she moved on. They had a chance encounter one day. And Nancy saw her teacher and she said, you know, I can type 65 words a minute because of you. I play the piano because <laughs> of you. I'm married. I have four kids. I have a great life. She looked at that teacher. She said, because of you. Because you took the time to encourage me. You took the time to be kind to me. And it changed the whole trajectory of my life. And we live in such a harsh world. Such a mean, cruel world. But we can bring kindness to it. And let me tell you something, friends. There's lots of things in this life that you might regret. But being kind to someone else is not going to be one of those things. Now, some of you are here today. And you wonder about the kindness of the Lord. I mean, does he really want to enter into your world? Does he really care about you? Does he really love you? Can he really forgive you for everything you've done? Oh, friends, look to the cross of Jesus. He is spraying out his arms in love for you. He died for you. He rose again for you. And he wants to rid you of the shame. He wants to rid you of the guilt. He wants to give you a brand new lease on life. And it's just a prayer away. And I pray that today would be the day where you'd have a conversation with some one of our counselors about having a real relationship with a real God who really does love you. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to be kind. Help us to love others the way that you've loved us. God, may we be known for our love, for our forgiveness, and for our kindness in the midst of a world that's gone absolutely nuts. May we be the peace in the midst of the storm. 
Lord, for friends who can hear my words right now and they're struggling. They have made so many mistakes. They have sinned so greatly against you and they're just certain that you don't care about them. God, I pray in this moment that you would let them know through the power of your Holy Spirit how much you do. And that today would be the day where they finally say, I need Jesus in my life. May your kindness and your grace win them over. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.